My topic today is expect to reap. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. We have been speaking for the past four weeks, today being the fourth and the final week, on the topic of sowing and reaping. There is this unchallengeable and unchangeable law that God has set in motion. It's called the law of sowing and reaping. And it simply says this. Our, our words, our thoughts, our actions, our spending of time, our giving of money, our seed, and whatever we sow, we reap. And that's not my law. I'm not smart enough to have invented it, but I am smart enough to follow it. And throughout the Bible, starting even from Genesis 8.22, we see that we ought to have an expectation. So you're in 1 Kings 17. Let me just set the mood. In Genesis 8.22, the scripture says, As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. We see the cycle this pattern, this, this unchangeable law. And God tells us, as long as the earth endures, you'll always have seed time and harvest. So in other words, you can expect to reap what you sow. Job 4 verse 8 says, As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. So Job chimes in and says, I, I saw the same thing. And Jesus then says, this principle works even when it comes to the topic of money. He tells us that in Luke 6 verse 38. He says, give and you'll receive. A large quantity pressed together, shaken down and running over will be put into your pocket. The standards you use for others will be applied to you. Jesus is telling us, hey, any time and every time you sow, even financially, you can expect to reap financially. And I want you to know that today is a special day in the life of the church because for the past four weeks, we've been talking about how we're going to sow a significant financial seed into the work of the Lord. Why? So we can receive a harvest in our own lives and families in the months and in the year ahead of us. I'm thrilled about this topic because Paul even chimed in and affirmed its validity. Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 7, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. I don't know about you. I expect to reap whenever I sow. And I teach on lots of topics. For, for you, maybe say, well, is this the topic you usually teach on? No, no, no. Every year, there's some standard topics I teach, even though I teach on a myriad of topics. Every year, I teach on marriage. Why? Because I want healthy marriages in the congregation. People have faith for, what, for the word they hear. Every year, I teach on parenting. Why? because I want to see healthy relationships with families, parents and kids and kids and parents. And so people have faith for what they hear. 
Every year I teach on prayer. Why? Because I want you to have a strong, robust, dynamic prayer life. Every year I teach about ethics and your interior life. Why? So you can have a good interior and healthy conscience and soul. So there's some things I teach on every year. Every year I teach on sowing and reaping. Why? Because there's some seeds that you need to plant so that God can cause you to reap. But you got to expect the harvest. It was about 15 years or maybe 20 years ago before there was ever a West Campus. East Campus just opened up. And God had been dealing with the heart of our pastoral team to go on radio and take the Sunday morning teaching time, put it on radio. I went to the radio station, the major radio station at the time. That was before the internet was heavy and all of that. Major radio station at the time, WMCA out of New York. It's broadcast in a broader metropolitan area. And I said, I'd like to have a 30-minute daily spot, Monday through Friday, 30 minutes. I said, Reverend Ireland, I'm sorry, but we don't have anything available. And I remember that week I was going to Pittsburgh to be a part of this conference. As I'm sitting there during the conference time, the minister getting up to receive the offering that day said, maybe there's an area in your life where the doors are closed and you need to plant a seed because he said seeds are prophetic plows that break up hardened areas and creates a harvest. Some things that you hear, you write down. Other things are written on you. That statement was written on me. And then he went on to say, he said, why not sow a seed towards that area that you want God to harvest in your life? The only thing that came to my mind was this radio program. And it was $500 per slot for 30 minutes. So that means it will cost, essentially, if you go five days, five times 500, 2,500 bucks a week. And so I said, I'm going to sow a seed for $500. I wrote out my check, $500. Gave it to the offering for their needs, their ministry. Sowed it, though, towards my life and ministry. I got back home on Monday. I kid you not. Got a phone call from a radio station. They said, Reverend Ireland, a drive-time spot opened up at 9 a.m. Monday through Friday. Would you like it? I said, absolutely. And I was on radio for about 10 years, different markets in America. And I remember we would have radio rallies in New York City. A radio rally is when you have a service like this and people that listen to the radio, because you don't see people when they're listening, and they would come get a, have a chance to meet the teacher. And so I would have book signing and I would teach. And so I'll get a chance to meet the audience. And I remember I'm signing books after teaching. And this big guy comes up to me. He says, I'm a police officer here in New York City. I was driving in my squad car, and I flipped the radio station, and there you were. You came on. You're talking about Jesus, and I gave my heart to Jesus. I just wanted to tell you, thank you. I remember a woman coming to me and said, I'm a single parent, and I didn't know what I was doing with my kids, and you were talking about parenting, and you taught me. You helped me parent my kids. Thank you. And so I want you to see, when you sow, expect to reap. Now, Let's set up, we're getting ready to read the 1 Kings 17. All of what I said was just the appetizer. Don't fill up on the appetizer. Let's get into the meal. The story and the setting is that the nation of Israel had been in a famine for about two years. Elijah the prophet, according to God's intent and desire, Elijah prophesied there should be no rain in this nation until I say so. 
God shut up the heavens. Elijah then, he's afraid because there was a hit out on him, the king, queen, trying to make sure he, who said that? He prophesied that, we're in trouble, let's kill him. God tells Elijah, go and hide by the brook, by the Kerith Ravine, and there you can drink water. Since I got this spot that nobody knows about, you hide out there. And I'll send ravens twice a day, morning and evening, to drop off food for you. Elijah says, cool, I'll do it. And he does. Scholars say two years later, the brook dried up. Let's find out what happens because what we'll learn is this. Belief drives behavior. In 1 Kings 17, verse 7 says, Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that is to Elijah. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son. We may eat it and die. Verse 13. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you've said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up. And the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family for the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah what a powerful story why don't you come with me by the brook it's dry now there's no water. The prophet hears from God. Go to Zarephath. I love the fact that beliefs drive behavior. There was not a question in Elijah's mind, though he didn't understand which woman. Why Zarephath? Why this Gentile territory? Why this Gentile widow woman? None of those questions entered his mind. Why? He simply knew enough about God to know, if God said it, I believe it, and let me move towards God's directive for my life. Zarephath was eight miles south of Sidon, 
where Elijah was. And he took God's word at face value. How about you? When God speaks to you in his word about what he wants of you, do you believe it? Or do you fight with God? I've learned enough that when God says something to me, though I don't fully understand it, I got to line up my life with what God called me to do. And even when it comes to money, because people get very scared when it comes to money. Money. I can believe God. If God wants me to sit here, I can sit there. God wants me to give. Whoa. Time out, time out, time out, time out, time out. Elijah learned enough about God to avoid the trap. And in case you don't know it, there's a trap when it comes to money. And the trap is where a lot of Christians fall prey to. And the trap has to do with two extremes. It has to do with the prosperity gospel and it has to do with the poverty gospel. Both you may find, if you're not careful, if you read the Bible and you succumb to a faulty theology, wrong assumptions, wrong emphasis, you'll fall prey, P-R-E-Y, to the prosperity gospel. And in the same breath, if you read the Bible with a faulty assumption, faulty perspective, you'll fall prey to the poverty gospel. See, the prosperity gospel, it makes you feel like you're entitled to much. I'm a child of the king. I'm a king's kid. The best is what I deserve. I want much. I'm entitled to much. And I want you to understand, Elijah was one of the king's kids. He's thirsty. He has no water. He has nothing. And he has to be listening to God to find out where he can go to get water. But yet, he was still a son of God. The other extreme is that you're entitled to little. That's the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says, I'm a worm, I'm poor, I'm undeserving, I, I don't deserve anything significant, I'm nobody, I'm nothing. Both extremes are wrong. Both extremes are unbiblical. The prosperity gospel fosters a thinking pattern that, that creates a lack of discipline. You reason, I don't have to budget. I don't have to live within my means. I'm a child of the king. Whenever I need money, and you espouse the phrase, money cometh. That's not the Bible. That's faulty. Anytime you apply the Bible, the Bible should be applicable in every nation. In developing countries and in first world nations. And if you have to twist it when you're in America and then twist it into a different thing when you're in Zambia, it's not the Bible. And so the prosperity gospel makes you have a lack of discipline. 
God calls us to save. He calls us to live within our means. He calls us to budget. He calls us to eliminate debt. He calls us to do all that. And that's equal to the Bible. The other extreme is the poverty gospel, which makes you have a lack of discipline. Because you lack destiny. See, destiny is when you say, I'm a victim of circumstances. When you lack destiny. Oh, my birth, my parents didn't know much. They didn't teach me about money. And my future can't change. I'm stuck. That poverty gospel, which fosters lack of destiny, is equally detrimental to a lack of discipline. The prosperity gospel, it makes you have wrong priorities. All you care about is money. You care about stuff. God, I just want more stuff. I wish I had a bigger garage for more stuff. You never care about the Great Commission. You don't care about salvation. You don't care about transforming people. You don't think about changing society. You don't think about helping the poor and the impoverished, the broken. You think about more stuff for you. So the prosperity gospel brings about a wrong priority. The poverty gospel brings about a wrong perspective. You start to reason that God is more concerned, or rather God is not concerned about my earthly needs. Poverty is next to godliness. That's not in the Bible. That gives you a bad view of God. There are rich people that love God. God has no problems with rich people. God has no problem with money. He just doesn't want money to have you. See, both extremes are wrong. The prosperity gospel fosters a thinking that fuels greed. Give me more. Give me more. Give me more. The poverty gospel fuels grief. And you inadvertently grow sorrowful and sad and despondent and brokenhearted because it isolates you from the magnificence and the goodness of God. Both are extreme. Both are unscriptural. You may say, well, where should I be? Right in the middle. In the middle is where you should be. I trust God. I'm believing God. I'm standing on God's word. That even if I don't have enough, I still serve God. Even if I'm in, double, in a difficult situation, I trust God. I'm going to walk through this trial with my integrity. I'm going to make sure nothing has my heart, that my allegiance belongs to God. And when I'm in trouble, I'm going to say, my God will supply my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And I stand on God's word. And so belief drives behavior. And Elijah was not thrown away. He was not discombobulated. When God said, get up from there and go to Zarephath, he walked eight miles away. In Bible days, eight miles was a long distance because he's walking that distance. No car, no public transportation, no jet, no train. He walked. He gets to Zarephath. And as providence would have it, there's a woman at the edge of the city gathering sticks. And he says to her, Hey, can you bring me some water? Just in a cup, a little bit of water. Now, mind you, it's famine. She starts walking towards getting water. And then he has the audacity. Can you bring me, please, a little piece of bread? She responds back from her distance. No. 
I only have enough flour in order to make some food for me and my son. I have a little bit of oil. We'll bake our bread. I just have enough for us. Once we bake it, once we eat it, we're preparing ourselves to die. No. It is amazing now. This woman, her heart was gripped by fear. But what we learn is this. Faith defeats fear. See, fear blinds you from seeing the possibility. Fear paralyzes you into thinking in a faulty way where you believe that your posture and your position is the best, is the safest. Fear makes you unable to see any other outcome other than failure, death, loss. Fear says, look, there's no hope for you. You might as well just, just pack it in. It's all over. But it's amazing how you have to then learn to overcome it. And so the prophet is going to help her overcome it. Fear puts you in a vice grip that makes you feel more and more like a victim, like a loser, like a failure. just squeezes you. And this unnamed woman was a widow. We have no idea how long she had been a widow. We do know she was a widow. We also know she had a son. In the Hebrew, that word... Son, it meant an underaged child. So it was a little boy. Now I want you to see how this prophet, because some people say, well, how could this, this, this man go and ask this woman who's a, who's, a, who's a widow? She's poor. How could he then look to her? I know it's tough when you do that. But although she's unnamed, she's not unimportant to God. And I want you to see that Faith always defeats fear. And Elijah, he knew enough that if God sent me to Zarephath, he has a plan that I don't fully understand. I know how Elijah must have felt because he could have said, God, why this Gentile widow woman? Well, why not some wealthy person? Why not a guy? Because widows in Bible days were poor because in a male-based society, they had no, she had no adult son. She had no husband. There was no man in her life that had a job. And in a male-based society, the women didn't have the same level of freedom for employment. And so she only was someone who was able to receive charity. Since they're in a famine, it was a dog-eat-dog kind of world. And so everyone's fending for themselves. And so here's this poor woman, and she's fending for herself. And here comes a guy who has the nerve to ask this widow woman for help. And there's some of you sitting here right now. We're saying, Pastor, if you knew my circumstance, you would never ask me to sow a seed. In fact, you'd be sowing a seed to me. And that may be true, but the worst thing I can do for you is to leave you in your place of being gripped by fear. Because if you never learn to defeat fear by faith, you'll always be self-driven rather than God-driven. You'll always walk in disobedience rather than obedience. Fear fosters disobedience. Faith fosters obedience. And there's something powerful about that dynamic. And it took a lot of courage for Elijah, big burly guy, to go to a woman who is a widow and say, could you please give me some food? I know how he felt. 
You may say, how do you know? I was 22 years old, or actually 21 years old, finishing up my engineering master's, and I couldn't find a job in my field. And I was living in the dorms at Stevens Institute of Technology, and they already told me, hey, graduation day, you got to leave the dorms. I had no place to go, and I knew that God had something for me in New Jersey, so I'm praying. I've just been a Christian now for about a year, so I'm praying, God, I, I don't know what to do. I need help. I need your guidance. God gave me a dream. And in the dream, I saw myself sitting at this table with my books opened up on the table. And where I was sitting was in the basement of this woman that I'd met in church, a widow woman with a little boy. And somehow in that church that we're a part of, we just hit it off and had a, you know, this rapport. And this, you know, she's about 20 years my senior. And we had this rapport because she loved reading books. And I love reading books. And so we talk about what books we're reading. And her son, back in the 80s, you know, you'd call each other brother or sister. And so the little boy, he was about five years old. He said, Brother David. I always call him Brother David. I said, yeah, Mark, what's going on? He said, Brother David. He'll just talk. Love talking. And so when I woke up from the dream... I saw that when I was in the dream with books there, I was so comfortable in the space as if I lived there. So here I am now, I woke up. I'm saying, how do I tell this woman that God showed me living in her basement? I mean, how do you have that kind of conversation? I mean, you just, you just, you can't. And so I'm thinking, but I, I'm stuck. I, if, I'm going to be homeless in a couple of days. So I'm in the quandary. And I remember calling her up. My name was Ruth. I said, Ruth, I got something that may sound weird to tell you or to ask you. And she said to me, I remember these words. David, don't tell me anything. Let me tell you something. I had a dream the other night and I saw you in my basement and you were living there. Do you need a place to live? Our God is up to something. And by the way, Mark now who's an adult is a member of our congregation and his wife and they have a kid. Just in the, in the, in the wisdom of God. I'm, I'm pointing out to you that, that sometimes when God asks us to do things, it may be weird. It may be unorthodox. It may not make any sense. But when you do what God's called you to do, and so I lived there for about six months, then I got my engineering job, transitioned. We're friends now, you know, for decades. Why? God knows what He's doing. And we must recognize faith always defeats fear. And if you're driven by fear, you'll never have a story of God's provision. You'll never have a story of how God can do the impossible. You'll never have a story of how God is always interested in moving you from height to height, from level to level, from this stage to the next. You'll never know and you'll get stuck and immobile because fear paralyzes you. Faith frees you up. And ladies and gentlemen, we serve a God that responds to faith. And Elijah said to her in 1 Kings 17 verse 13, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, 
But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. Look at Elijah. Elijah's going to help her now just defeat her fear. Watch what he does. Because fear says, I can't. Faith says, I can. The widow changed her decision from I can't give you any bread to I can give you bread. The poor widow reversed her allegiance from self. It's all about me, all about my need, I'm about to die. To what does God want? And faith always asks, what does God want? Fear always asks, what does self want? And there this woman was able to see her fear chipped away because she simply said, God must love me so much that he sent a national prophet to me. Scripture says she was at the edge of the city gathering sticks. In the Hebrew, that word sticks means twigs, little brambles, little pieces, because in the city proper, all the sticks have been used. All the twigs have been exhausted. Others have collected it. So she's all at the city gate now. And there she was, and here comes this man of God. It is amazing how the providence of God works. God in his infinite wisdom sends a prophet her way who's not just a local prophet. He's a national prophet, and he's a guy who is the one who said, no, no rain until the Lord tells me to say rain will come, and he's now visiting this widow. I want you to see this woman accepted the providence of God and she realized if I, as I give to him first that means it's seed faith she recognized the principle of seed faith sowing creates reaping you sow first you reap later you sow now you reap tomorrow and she recognized you sow now and you reap more than you sow and here's a woman she realized like you must realize expect to reap belief drives behavior and faith defeats fear and there's some of you right now, your fear should be being chipped away, chipped away, chipped away, chipped away, chipped away by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit wants to do something through your life. And He wants you to trust Him with your seed because He has something in store for you. And you're going to learn to move towards what God wants you to do. That's how we grow in our faith. We don't grow in our faith because we just read books. We go in our, for on our faith when we step out on the water and trust God. There are lots of you, you know so much. All this theological, all this theoretical, you know a whole lot of stuff. It's like when I used to do premarital counseling. I'd sit there and I'd say to the couple, everything that you've heard before, mar before about marriage, it's all theory. Now you're going to have to live it. It's a whole other thing now. It's a whole other thing. It's theory. Planting determines reaping. I want you to see, when that widow woman went and gave Elijah that piece of bread, she in essence was planting a seed, seed faith. And her planting determined her reaping. And the scripture says that she had enough bread and oil until rain came. Scholars agree it was another year later that rain came. I have some questions of you and of the text. What would have happened if the widow did not give to Elijah first? Could she have expected a harvest? 
Would she and her son have died prematurely? We're uncertain about that. What we are certain of is this. Planting determines reaping. Reaping follows sowing. Here's my next question. What would have happened if Elijah never challenged a widow to sow a seed? Could he have expected a harvest? Would he have died prematurely? We're uncertain. What we are certain of is this. Planting determines reaping, and reaping follows sowing. What would happen if I never asked you to plant a seed? I have no idea what harvest would be prevented. Neither do you. But we are certain of this. When you plant, you can expect to reap. I love when I hear people who have gone, come through a whole lot of stuff tell you their story. And they talked about what God did for them on the, along the way. There are certain groupings of psalms. There are 15 of them. They're called songs of ascent. A-S-C-E-N-T. Songs going up. That's, it was upward songs. And it's upward, not in terms of vertical height, but going up to Jerusalem. Because they would sing that during the three holy feasts, high holy days for Israel. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And from the north, south, east, and west of Israel, they would all consider going to Jerusalem as going up to Jerusalem. And when they go up, they'll be reminded of how God brought them out of slavery. And God delivered them from all that stuff in the past. And so when they're going up to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple, they would sing songs. And one of the psalms that they sang was, Psalm 126. So the 15 Psalms is from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. Those are the songs of ascent. Psalm 126 verse 5 says this, we cried as we went out to plant our seeds. Now let us celebrate as we bring in the crops. We cried on the way to plant our seeds, but we will celebrate and shout as we bring in the crops. I must admit, these two verses bothered me for decades. What does it really mean? Why are they singing these songs? Why are they singing these verses when they're going to worship? That we cried and we went out to plant seeds and then we're bringing in the crops and we're rejoicing? It all made sense when I came across a story by Del Tar, a missionary to West Africa. He said, he too was also perplexed with Psalm 126 until he went to the Sahel, that vast stretch of savanna, more than 4,000 miles wide just under the Sahara Desert. Listen to what the missionary said. In the Sahel, all the rain comes in a four-month period, May, June, July, August. After that, not a drop of rain falls for the next eight months. He says, the year's food must all be grown in those four months. People grow sorghum or milo in small fields. October and November, these are beautiful months. There's singing, there's dancing, there's rejoicing. People eat two meals a day. By January, most families are down to eating just one meal, and then later on it diminishes where they just drink gruel. It's a broth kind of thing. And he says, then inevitably it happens. A six or seven-year-old boy comes running to his father one day with sudden excitement. Daddy, daddy, we've got grain. Son, you, you know we haven't had grain for weeks. Yes, we have, the boy insists. Out in the hut where we keep the goats, there's a leather sack hanging on the wall. I reached up 
and put my hand down in there, Daddy. There's grain in there. Give it to Mommy so she can make flour, and tonight our tummies can sleep. The father stands motionless. Son, we can't do that. He softly explains. That's next year's seed grain. It's the only thing between us and starvation. We're waiting for the rains, and then we must use it. The rains finally come in May, and then the young boy watches as his father takes a sack from the wall and does the most unreasonable thing imaginable. Instead of feeding his desperately starving, weakened family, the father goes out to the field and takes the grain and scatters it and plants it. And the father tells the boy, Son, you can never eat. You can never eat your seed because the seed dictates your harvest. Some of you are eating your seed. And when you want to harvest, you can't get it. And so whatever you do, you got to be like a farmer. Never eat your seed. And there are times you have to go out weeping while you're planting. Because you're saying, this looks foolish. I should not be planting this. And you're weeping as you plant. But the scripture says, you're going to come back home rejoicing with the harvest. And for some of you, your time of sowing today may be a tearjerker. But I want to encourage you. Planting determines reaping. And I want to lead you in a special time of sowing today so that your future can be impacted by your present seed. Amen.